You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm an extremely tired Stuart Goldsmith and I'm going to bang through the intros and the middle bits for this episode and just let you get on and uh, enjoy the show itself. This is the Comedian's Comedian podcast in which I take a, a, a lens, a magnifying lens of some sort to the brain processes of your favourite comedians and uh, work out crucially if they're happy and uh, how they write and perform their material. And today I'm very excited to be talking to Imran Yusuf, who I caught up with at the Edinburgh Festival, just gone. Imran is a really interesting character. He's uh, a voraciously, I'm not going to say obsessed, but he has a voracious appetite for personal development. Um, he talks extraordinarily quickly and uh, has a real lust for life. He's a very happy, self-made kind of a comic and um, has a very interesting backstory. Uh, notably, he kind of blew up quite early in the, the end of, what was it, kind of around 2010. He was the first Free Fringe Act ever to be nominated for the Newcomer Award, the Best Newcomer Comic at uh, the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, and then a few months later, he was on Michael McIntyre's Comedy Roadshow, which I think predated Live at the Apollo for being one of like the key showcase TV shows for comics in the UK. Um, but Imran is the first to admit that he wasn't able to capitalise on the success um, that he enjoyed in the early days of his career and, um, and has had to sort of regroup and talks very candidly here about that process, about kind of looking like it was really going to go off and then it didn't go off. And how do you cope with that when that's the case? And how do you stay positive and continue rebuilding uh, as Imran has done? Really exciting conversation. Let's get stuck into this one. Thank you to the Cameo Cinema in Edinburgh for allowing me some space to record there during the Fringe. So it's a lovely uh, indie cinema, the Cameo, so pop along when you can. Now, Imran Yusuf. <laughs> So what should we start with? I loved your show. Thank I you. saw your show yesterday. Yeah. It's one of the most abrupt starts to a show. <laughs> I think I've ever seen. A, you didn't announce yourself. Yeah. You walked on with your fist held high in the air. Yeah. You walked on, got to the centre of the stage. What's the very first line of the show? Very first line of the show what, what, um, is... Right, so in the process of writing the show and all the excitement that came with it, I developed some bad news. Yeah, great. Oh, we, well, let's not get into what it yeah. is, but it's, you don't even say hello. It's yeah, like, bang, yeah, you're there, the thing's yeah, happening. Yeah. And I think that really typified your approach. I've not seen you live since that gig that we did together in, in North London, and before yeah. then, not for a long time. Yeah. We were on a similar sort of open mic Yeah, we circuit. started around the same time. Yeah, we yeah, did. Yeah. When did you start? I started, properly, I started in 2003. Okay. Um, and I remember meeting you at like a laughing horse gig. I remember being, I can remember this scene. Uh, we're upstairs at the Coaching Horses and you're walking down the stairs and, you talk, uh, and you're like, oh yeah, I'm a street performer and that's the background that I've come from. Sounds like and, me. Yeah, and uh, uh, now doing stand-up. And I remember just like, you know, you had a great vibrant energy about you and you really enjoyed it, which you, you know, I'm really happy that you've maintained o over these years. You, that's actually, I remember, I, I don't remember that conversation, but I remember a later conversation where we were kind of congratulating each other on 
both being really positive people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, there's a lot, yeah. in, particularly in the open mic circuit, there is yeah. a lot of, there's the excitement of being there, yeah. and then there's a lot of resentment and sure, frustration sure. and all yeah, those sort of things. Yeah. And I think, I certainly, we've had one or two moments in the last 10 years where we've kind of gone, oh, you've always got a spring in your step. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, you're yeah, always yeah. Like, really positive yeah. about it. So lucky, like, yeah, just, uh, it's, uh, I mean, I've had bad times, and I've gone into those resentful and, like, uh, angry and, like, very unworthy modes um, but I always bounce back. I always bounce back to, no, I must go, I must have the courage to achieve my dreams and, yeah. and jump forward, and mainly because I watch a lot of anime and grew up watching Jackie Chan films. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Know. Well, and also because, well, well, we'll get to your fascination with self-improvement. Yes. I know we had a chat about yeah, that, and that's yeah, yeah. A, that's a, we'll, we'll get on to that. So in terms of the, the your work of yours that I've seen most recently, that abruptness, bang, we started, we're yeah. off. You seem to have an incredible facility for jumping between... It dizzying levels of self-confidence <laughs> and kind of faux arrogance, yeah, maybe yeah. some real arrogance yeah, in there yeah, as well. Absolutely. Um, and then being able to be vulnerable and yeah. then trying to really make a genuine point that's really well thought out mm-hmm. and then pointing out how well thought out your point is. Yeah. <laughs> do, you that, do you think that, that's it's fair? It's several that different genres happening at the same time. <laughs> yeah. One of the bits of maybe how when I saw your show was you said, uh, you, you, there's a line where you're like, don't try that, guys. You've got to be my level of hero. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah, 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 so yeah, like, yeah. It's an absurd kind of blown confidence. Yeah. But I think it's also like the best stand-up, like the most authentic stand-up. It's rooted mm. clearly in some sort of real confidence. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk or about truth or actual truth of who we are. You know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Instead of yeah, I think we're all. It's it's quite interesting. I think the global kind of social culture that we're moving towards and the impact social media has had on our consciousness is about you know you need to well i'm of this opinion and i wear these clothes and i'm into this because only people who are like this are actually like normal proper people and if you don't hold these opinions then you're the one who's wrong and needs to evolve and get with the times whereas look we're all imperfect right and it's okay it's you know we all very easy to go hey i'm not a sexist i'm not a homophobe i'm not a racist no we all are we just learn to draw the lines further and further away as because our, our compassion takes over over time. As I've described in my show, like here are the prejudices that, um, that, that I have or that I've had and how I've learned to push the lines further away because I understand there are human beings behind the people I'm judging. So, um, it's, yeah, I think we're all imperfect. And rather than owning those imperfections, we're like, no, you know, look at what I'm wearing and look at, what, look at me pretending to be this person on social media and, yeah, smashing it, retweeting praise and all of this. And I think we're all doing that because we're afraid of people finding out that we're actually terrified and we don't know what we're doing and we're very uncertain about what the next minute can bring. But having said that, I agree. But I think in your case, you, you clearly have a lot of... Like, for you, how much of the confidence that you display on stage mm-hmm. is real calm still confidence how much of it is bravado and and you know kind of joke overblown confidence what's the relationship between those for oh, you specifically right. okay i think it's rooted in a in a real i know that when i do the super arrogant bits i i well i hope the audience understands that they know i'm doing it deliberately because I'd have to be insane to walk around with that level. I didn't, you know, so when I did that whole bit of like, hey guys, don't try this at home. You've got to be my level of awesome to yeah, put yeah, it off. Yeah. So even though I did that thing, it's not, I wouldn't recommend anybody to do that particular thing. Like, hey, Imran Yusuf did it, he got away with it. It was spontaneous, what I did, and I got away with it because I had loads of charm on my side, right? So it wasn't calculated. I didn't go in there and measure my options. It just came out and it happened. Sure. And I was very fortunate 
that um, I didn't get into a lot of trouble. Okay, okay, we don't, we won't go too far into right. the thing. I don't want to spoil anything, <laughs> spoil anything for people who are going to come and see. Um, I suppose what I'm asking is the the level of confidence that you have. I wondered watching you whether, like, sometimes you're in. If if we sort of divide them into strata, yeah. right? So there's there's basic the confidence to get up on stage in front of people. That's what we've all got. We've every all got every comedian. That that's what makes us different from civilians. Is that sure. you know? And I, I love that term. You know I don't know if they do. <laughs> you know what? I said that in front of Gareth Berliner, and he got upset. He's like, "No, there's no distinction between us and them." And I'm like, "Yeah, I get it, man. We're all one, but look, well, we are better." Than that. It's just like, well, in terms of look, so uh, this is a quick aside. To, once we go through the strata, it's so um, civilians. Everybody has uh, can read and write, speak, stack shelves, and so we get to contribute and work within this society that we've created, right? Whereas a comedian, it's can read and write as well, but we do it to just a sufficiently higher level that gives, and because we have the confidence to stand in front of people and to display this ability to articulate the same language that everybody else is using in the world, but in an artful way, we get to stand on stage and we do it and we're elevated and we're that little bit better than regular civilians. Just that little <laughs> bit. Just that little bit, right? So this is exactly what I'm talking about. That thing where me or the casual listener might be going, I mean, is he a megalomaniac? <laughs> you know, you're, you really relish yeah. the, the listener not knowing the extent to which, like, oh, yeah, I'm following this point. Oh, no, he can't possibly <laughs> mean that. You, know, you enjoy that. Yeah, when I say better, not as if in a better form of human being, but as if in that specific arena, because it actually t- takes a lot for to go, I'm going to stand up on stage and I'm going to say this stuff and people are going to want to listen because I'm so good at it. It's like an athlete. Is that a little bit better than a civilian is? Well, a lot better than a civilian is, particularly athletics right Usain Bolt is superior physically to both of us right now when I say that physically in but in running in particular right he he actually may not be that good at swimming by comparison sure yeah yeah but but I think stand-up comedy Mm. is an art form it isn't empirically measurable some of it is some of it I think it is well it's the effort that you make to so I, I see it this way right every comedian is made of two parts celebrity and athlete some comics are all celebrity with zero athlete they've got writers they're very famous they're good looking and you know what it's it's fine there's some jealousy around uh, um from i guess from working comics uh or on the circuit but it's hard work for them to be up there at that level having to turn over material and then you know they've got writers to lean on and unfortunately sometimes as we all we've all seen sometimes writers will sit in comedy audiences steal material from working comics on the circuit and then you see that um basically jump onto television and then that poor guy who's working on the circuit trying to feed his family has had like a, a routine lifted from him that Mr. Moneybags or, you know, or Miss Moneybags, whatever, out there has taken. And unbeknowingly, well, yeah. at least we'd like to think it's unbeknowingly, right? And so, sorry, and so you've got, you've got the celebrities up there, right? And it's hard work and good for them that they've earned it. Then you've got the athlete who has no celebrity at all. The, guy, the, the circuit comic who's been on the circuit for years is always turning over always turning over and is really strong. So uh, I'll, I'll, to give you an example, Dave Fulton is a phenomenal athlete, right? He's an amazing club comic and he's always turning over, always. And he puts everything into what he's saying. Like he means it and he owns it. And, but like he's, he's not been on TV a lot. Like um, he, he's, he should be on much bigger things, right? And the police have arrived to arrest him. <laughs> um, yeah, that, whenever anyone mentions Dave right. on the podcast, that's it. We might actually just pause because that sounds yeah. like quite... Okay. Oh, it is going away. We didn't it is going away. All right. So, so, so he, great. So, and you can see there's two types. There's an athlete and there's celebrity. And what it come down to is that um, 
um, some people are all celebrity. Some comics are all celebrity and very little athlete. There's very little respect around what their writing is and what they do. Like we don't appreciate it as much. But then you look at someone who's an athlete with no celebrity, and we really respect them. Like um, my peer group would have been. I, I've always been around get around people who are better than you. So after like I got nominated and got into the comedy store, I'm like, right, I'm joining the cutting edge because I need to get around the best topical writers in the country. And none of these guys are massively famous, but they're the best writers that there is. And, I, and that got, so I'm always around people who are better than me. So you, there you go. You've got, the, um, you've got the athlete, someone who's working on the language. And this is where it's empirical. If you're reading and writing every day, every day, you are improving your comprehension, your ability to articulate the English language. Because that's all we're doing, standing on stage and we're speaking English. Now, everyone can speak English. Well, everyone in the audience should be able to, right? But those who read and write every day and work on the craft of being able to speak and create pictures in people's imaginations, that's where it's empirically measurable. But the yes, you could say, oh, this person has a, a measurably bigger vocabulary than this person, and the way that they uh, and and the, the the way they are able to display it through their performance. So, I'll give you an example: someone like uh, watching Rob Rouse, Rob Rouse, and Roger, Roger Monkhouse. The two names that jump into my head sure. when I think about people who are incredible with language, mm -hmm. incredible. Like you watch them, and you're watching a real poet at work mm -hmm. in the way they're able to articulate these amazing like scenes. They want go for the layman's way of saying something uh, just a small thing uh, just it, even in small ways like something Roger Monkhouse said recently where uh, we were talking about stereotypes uh, of, of Russian people of mm. what you, when you think of Russian person what do you think of and nowadays because of uh, what, what's happening in the world you might think of someone who's uh, involved you know a secret KG, uh, KGB agent sure. or, or Russian prostitutes or oligarchs whatever and instead of him saying something like well most people would so there's a Russian person in the audience and instead of him saying something like oh well most people would assume that you might be this that's a layman he goes well in popular imagination you might be an oligarch or a, a prostitute yes that's it. yes, yes. In, popular in popular imagination, imagination. and it's so simple right yes it's so simple but nobody else would do it Sure. But Roger would, and that's natural to him because he really works on, you know, he, he, he has a love of language. He's like a, the equivalent of a rapper, really. Absolutely. I, I don't disagree with anything that you're saying there, but I think, and also leaving aside the fact that there are a lot of celebrity comedians who work incredibly hard. Yes. And are athletes, yeah, and there yeah. are a lot of working, working comics, oh, right. athlete yeah. comics who aren't turning over material. You know, there's, right. those, those yeah. poles you've yeah. identified, there's certainly, that, that's like, I don't think they're poles apart. I think mm. they are flavours of stand-up. Oh, sure. If you look at, like, Bill Burr, Bill Burr's blown in the last few years, right? Sure. And I remember, I remember seeing Bill Burr as token white dude in Dave Chappelle's show. Yeah. In the A sketch. And you could just tell, oh, I bet he's a stand-up and he's mates with Chappelle and yeah. he's got on the show like that. And, um, and then a few years ago, suddenly on my YouTube feed, not that I was looking for it, this Bill Burr pops up. And I'm like, I remember that dude from Chappelle's show. And I watch a bit and I'm like, my God, this guy is good. And then suddenly another whole hour is available on YouTube. Yeah. These are all old recordings yeah. that I managed to get to YouTube. And I'm like, that's great. And then another one comes out and that's great. And then suddenly me and my mates are like all sharing like, hey man, have you seen Bill Burr? Have you seen Bill Burr? Have you seen Bill Burr? And now he's huge. And I realise, you know what? He built his celebrity off the back of his athlete because he never got the golden ticket. He was never like, hey, you're going to be the TV show, a big star of this, blah, 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 blah. He just put the work in and over 20 years or you know, more of doing stand-up, sure, sure. that athlete becomes undeniable undeniable hence the name of adam rose show because he's named it after that one phrase in uh, uh bill burr you just become undeniable so bill burr right now is my like my i would say the comic that i look at and go wow 
like, wow, that's amazing. Because you watch him and go, pure athlete. That's all his writing. He cares about what he's saying. And I've got to a point now where I can watch a comic, like famous comics on Netflix, and go, this is all writers. None of this is coming out of him or her. These are all writers and say, it's cool to talk about, you know, uh, your friend showing you baby pictures. It's cool to talk about uh, things that you don't really understand, like really rubbish tropes about, you know, politics and stuff like this. But when Bill Burr talks, that's coming out of him. And I really respect that. Really respect it. And I was saddened, massively saddened. I love Chris Rock. I love, it's important. Like, he's so important. But his last special, oh my gosh, it's awful. My gosh. God, it is. And it hurt me. I'm like, this is like me watching Jackie Chan end up in a soap opera, uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, as, a, as like a background character. Chris Rock is, was, he's like a Malcolm X of stand-up, especially in the mid-90s when he came out with that famous routine about the Civil War within the African-American community. Mm-hmm. But his later special, oh my, it was embarrassing. Like, I felt like, oh, my God, you, man, you are my hero. If you look at my Michael McIntyre performance, that's me trying to be Chris Rock. Everything I say is enunciated, right? That's essentially me going, I'm trying to be like my hero. But I watched his latest one, and I was like, man, you've not, you, you, the, 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 the discipline of, of caring about your craft that got you to where, you know, to, uh, to, to, that got you to huge fame in the 90s and the early 2000s, he's no longer in the gym. I haven't caught his latest special yet, so I can't comment on the content of it. Is it possible that the things that concern him now are not the issues of a burning young man in his 20s who's angry and actually his subject matter is different now because he's an older man and he has a family and he's separated from his wife and he's dealing with older richer issues so it in, and I'm, I'm saying this yeah. just purely I hate the phrase devil's advocate but I yeah. haven't yeah, seen sure, the stuff sure, sure, I'm sure. just wondering he's clearly a different guy to the guy yeah. he was in the 90s um, he is but you look at Chappelle who's in a similar age bracket right um, and Burr all in the sim- uh, similar age brackets and uh, they've put they've always been in the gym you can tell now the people who've stayed in the gym and worked on the craft worked on the on the internal okay. machinery that makes a great stand up deliver a great performance Whereas he, maybe he just got really rich and it's taken his foot off the gas. He did this in the new show. He talks about getting divorced and because, you know, he cheated on his wife. And it's, it's, you know, it's very honest. But you're watching, he's not up to his old level of kung fu. Okay. Like Jackie Chan's level of kung fu is the same, right? Even yeah. though he's old, it's still, wow, Jackie Chan is still knocking it out. Chappelle's kung fu has gotten greater. Burr's kung fu has gotten greater. Rock, unfortunately, it turns up in the kung fu uniform and we all get ready. And he's, he's not been in the dojo anymore. So tell me, let, let's, let's look at this point you're making in the context of your particular journey through stand-up, mm-hmm. which, is, which we've talked a little bit about before, and you're very candid about the fact of your... You blew up early, right? Were you the first free fringe act? Free festival. Free I festival. Mean, yeah, act. free festival. Laughing horse. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. There's, there's all sorts of factions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you were the first one to be nominated. Did you win the award? Did you no, I, I was the first person to be nominated from the free scene at all. Yes. Which, so it's set that a new precedent. Was that? that was 2010. Um, in terms of breaking early, though, it's kind of weird because when we started out, 
I remember watching a lot of my peers get signed up, like they got agents and people were, but you know, they were getting bit parts and X, Y, and Z, whereas I just totally got ignored, like totally got ignored. Um, and then somebody, you know, some of the bigger people were sniffing around um, for a bit and then went, yeah, that he's not going to, like nothing's going to happen. You know, Imran Yusuf's not going to happen. And then a small agent came in, you know, took me on, believed in me. And uh, within a year, boom, uh, Michael McIntyre's Roadshow and uh, nomination at Edinburgh. So it wasn't as early as everybody else because I'd been going for like, I'd already come up, that was my third full run at Edinburgh. So the first, I came up in 2000. So it's, it's really weird. First ever gig I did was 2000. I did two gigs, quit to go to the games industry. I didn't quit. I just went to the games industry to do that. Then 2003, I started doing stand-up, do it for two and a half years, then take, get hit a depression, take a year and a half off, sort my head out go into Super Saiyan mode, come back in 2007, the spring of 2007. And uh, then 2008, I did a three-hander at the Edinburgh Festival. Me, Julian Dean, Andrew Wallace, who's now an author. 2009, I come up and I do a month of comparing um, for The Laughing Horse. And 2010, I come up and go, let me try and do an hour. Like, if I can, I can do half an hour, I know that for sure, sure. But if I've got a space to do an hour, I can learn how to do an hour and become that calibre of comic. And on the first show, I got a five-star review. And then it massively successfully backfired in all the right ways. Like I didn't want to be seen. I just wanted to learn. I, I came, this is a dojo for me. This is a gym. This is, for any Dragon Ball Z fans listening, this Edinburgh Festival is the hyperbolic time chamber, right? You can get so much I'm time. I'm not familiar so with Dragon Ball Z, so Dragon but Ball, I, I completely right, get, yeah, I feel like, yeah. You can do a year's worth of training in like one day. That's what the hyperbolic time chamber. So imagine how much stronger you become so fast. So, and the year I got nominated, I did 101 gigs. Like I would go, like you just... I don't drink, I don't party. And so I'm, I'm here to do the work. I'm here to lift the weights. And so that's what I do. And I guess that really helped me. That, so this is the empirical, quantifiable bits of if you're gigging all the time, working on your lang language and turning over, like turning up. So I read every day. Like I love reading. Like my Kindle is like, it's, I'm addicted to my Kindle. Like I'm halfway through Steve Jobs' biography at the moment. And as I, well, a great thing about Kindle is, is that if you see a word you don't understand, you press it and it tells you what it means. So I'm expanding my vocabulary at the same time. And so this is the very empirical and quantifiable bits of my art and my craft, which I'm actually, I realize that, you know, if you want to get big, you've got to eat food and you've got to push weights, right? So if you want to get good at comedy, you have to, you've got to treat your language are those weights, the more language you're able to possess and throw up, uh, you know, and, and lift, the stronger you become. So this is Imran. It's, it's great fun talking to him. He's such a different kind of a voice and a different kind of a character, talks 10 to the dozen and um, has a just like a, a raw and very genuine optimism, I think, under what could otherwise come across as slickness. I really recommend you see his comedy live. He's really good fun. And as, as, he, as he says in this interview, he sort of dances around the idea of being arrogant on stage. And it's really fun watching other people in the audience kind of gradually warm to him. You know, he can, I think he, his manner can slightly get some people's backs up in the crowd, but he's so warm and the, the kind of the optimism and the positivity shines through and it's really fun watching people get won over uh, by him and, and really buy into him. So lots more chat with Imran coming up and just a couple of very quick announcements. You can, of course, find Imran's stuff in all the usual places, the internet. Um, and uh, you can find out details about my tour, which is in spring of next year. That's at comedianscomedian.com slash tour. And uh, we're going to some uh, very exciting places, largely in the south and southwest for the moment. In autumn, 
of 2019 will be. I, I, the scansion was all wrong on that. That's in spring, comma, in autumn of 2019. Um, I'll be doing much more places in the UK and the rest of the Northwest and so on. Um, but comedianscomedian.com slash tour. And of course, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. If you would like to be part of that, if you'd like to be part of the gang um, and join this workspace app where we flick messages to one another uh, throughout the week as if we were all in an office together um, whilst enjoying the extra content from all past and future shows and some other projects besides. Uh, I'm going to be refiring those up uh, after another week. I've extended my paternity leave by another week uh, because the child is nocturnal. Uh, more on that in the postamble if I can bear to talk about it. Um, but uh, that's all of the things I need to tell you. So let's get back to Imran Yusuf. Coming back to this first year, you got you got a five star review. That was the same year as the nomination. Yes, yes. I got a couple so of five star reviews. The rest were fours, you, um, and the nomination. You planned to go under the radar. Yeah, it didn't work out. You got nominated. Did that precede McIntyre's Roadshow? No, I. You'd already done that. I, I'd already um, uh, gotten on the show, but I was going to record it during the festival. Right. And the way that worked out, it was all a happy accident. Um, I, I didn't have many gigs in the diary, and even though I had a sm- small time agent. Um, there's only so much stuff that he can get me. And because I'd learned to compare the year before, I'd become a bit more confident with it. And um, I um, phoned up a promoter and asked, I was like, hey, look, because they had stopped booking me. I was like, just want to let you know, I've learned to compare now. So all those gigs that I did last year, I could compare them now, make a bit of extra money. And they went, okay, cool, come and do this, uh, come and uh, compare this gig, it's 50 quid, uh, Kevin Bridges is closing. So I come down and I did it and I, and I, and I held it together. I don't feel that I was great, but as an MC, remember, it's, it's about, it's a responsibility. Mm-hmm. As an MC, it's your responsibility. It's not about you being the star of the show at all. It's about setting it up for everybody else. So I turned up and I did my best with the skills that I had. And um, as I walked out, um, I just overheard, you know, the pr- promoters, hey man, he was really good. And the next day I got a call from the promoter going, I heard you smashed it and we want to offer you a McIntyre audition. And I was like, what, me? You want, like, and, I, and I obviously, and my brain's just like, well, this is a box tick, ticking exercise. They need to show that they've had someone like myself at least go for it, and you know, I'm not going to get it. Let's be serious, right? Someone like yourself, meaning someone like, brown skin, yeah, Muslim. a brown skin Muslim guy yeah. on BBC One, right? And obviously, my level of comedian, because none of the big promoters or none of the big agents reckoned me. Like, I wasn't, you know, hey, do you want to come and be on this? Do you want to come? Like, well, all my peers were getting those breaks. Or at least I perceived that they sure, were, sure, but sure. I wasn't. Like, I wasn't getting some of the gigs that they were getting. So I thought, right, well, maybe that's not for me. And so I turned up to the McIntyre audition, and um, it's all proper, you know, circuit comics. I'm still an open spot at this point. And backstage, everyone's talking to McIntyre, and they all know him. And, you know, they've all been around the world with him, they've done gigs, and I'm just there, like, freaking out, you know, fish out of water. I went on fourth, which was a bit of a sweet spot, um, and I annihilated it. Right, just like I'm not messing around, and there's also another very serendipitous story of why I annihilated it as well. We'll come back to that in a second. Um, so I smash it and I walk off. And at the end of the night, McIntyre comes up to me, he goes, Imran, you're very likable and you can't fake that. Yeah, so good luck to you. More or less, that's what he said. And uh, he walked away. And as we come up to Edinburgh, um, I just ignored it. I was like, there is no way I'm going to get on McIntyre. And I got a call from the, uh, you know, his promoter, his agent, were like, he really likes you. And I was like, that, thank you, but that doesn't mean anything because ultimately there are bigger, you know, people in the world that are going to pull strings. And 
I just put it out of my head. It's impossible for someone like me to be on that show. That's for good-looking people, right? Remember, this time I had a broken nose, my teeth were messed up, and, you know, who's got, nobody wants to see an Imran Yusuf on, on this stuff. So I'd already put out... My dream was to just play the comedy store. That was it. That was my end game, really. Um, even though secretly, I was like, I can't be as big as Chris Rock. Um, and then just before I come up to Edinburgh, I get a call going, hey, this is a uh, producer of Michael McIntyre's Comedy Roadshow. We want you on the show. And I'm like, eh? For real? Um, and they're like, you're going to have to take a day off during the festival to film it. So I think and you said, no, no yeah, way. I'm yeah, committed. No way. Exactly. I'm in the dojo. I'm, yeah, I'm in the dojo, guys. I'm in the dojo. How much? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm there. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and then uh, came up to the festival, started doing the, the, the hour show, came together really fast and really well, and uh, did Mike and Taz Roadshow. So it was all very serendipitous. And just going back to that sure. whole point, um, January, no, December 2009. Boxing Day, my cousin dies, passes away. He was 26 years old, passes in his sleep, right? No, we have no idea why. Like, so the autopsy showed that he hadn't taken anything, just, uh, you know, he just, his spirit left his body, just gone. Um, and the whole family's thrown into turmoil, right? We've got family overseas, people are jumping on planes to fly back and figure out what's going on. Um, I go into a horrible place, um, which was a shame because he was my little brother growing up. Like, they had come from Nairobi uh, to, to London, and I used to help him. Like, I taught him to read and taught him to play football, and he was my little brother. And, the, uh, uh, you know, in the last few years before, before he died, we'd kind of fallen out, and, you know, we, we weren't talking. And that was a real shame, you know, and now he's gone. I can't, I, I can't make that up. So we all go, the whole family just goes into chaos because nobody so young has died in our immediate family in the immediate environment ever so we've never experienced this so we all freak out and so i just locked myself in my bedroom like after it took a while like normally muslim burials are like it has to be normally within 24 hours but because um he died at home and for no uh, and for, for unknown reasons there had to be an autopsy to understand because they have to rule out foul play and things like that which they did and just like look he just died and we don't know why so um yeah, we just went into a horrible place. Just uh, and I just I remember just locking myself in my bedroom, and uh, I, ju- I just I, I wouldn't leave. And a friend of mine, an Australian friend of mine, he get um, he had given me a book by Brian Tracy called Maximum Achievement because um, he knew I was into personal development and uh, and we'd shared a lot about you know going for your dreams. So I just sat there and I read it. I just came the whole book um, over a couple of days, just sitting in my bedroom, like eating very little, just leaving to go to the bathroom, and that's it. And um, Come, I've cancelled some gigs, and then come January, I'm like, well, I have to get back to work, and I have to start gigging again. Uh, but just before I did that, I'd bought an Xbox, and after we'd gone through like a bit of a the grieving process, I was like, okay, it's time for us. We can watch TV again now, and you know, get back to normal life. So I go on Xbox, and I'm playing uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 with my friend on Xbox Live, a friend of mine from Sega. Uh, who, who I used to work with at Sega when we were there. And we're playing, we're playing these American kids. And um, we can hear what, we can actually all talk to each other. And these American kids are being really nasty. Like, um, and they hear the way that we're talking. And they're like, oh, British guys, you guys suck. And they said all this like horrible stuff about Britain. Uh, you know, you guys suck, your accent sucks. Uh, if you don't care, we're going to bomb you like we did to the Japanese. Like, and everything that I said on McIntyre's Roadshow. And I felt like, a, like I was really offended. Now, they're obviously assuming that we're a bunch of white kids, right? But we're not, me and my friend uh, Brown, right? But it's still offensive. They're talking about our country, right? And, uh, and, and talking, you know, shit about us. And, and I'm also in my house. I can't defend myself. I can't, like, go up to this kid and go, you, you, pow, can't punch him in the face. And I'm very sensitive, very, very sensitive. And so I remember just feeling upset. And then suddenly I turned it into, a, like, a, a small routine of, like, when they offended us, 
that we were offended because they were taking the piss out of our white people, right? <laughs> yeah, Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, well, what are you talking about, mate? Do you know what I mean? I'm not having any of this. And so I remember doing that joke on stage in Milton Keynes for Ian Franklin, and nobody laughed. And I go back to, to, to just that joke. Nobody laughed at that joke. But I go to the back of the room and Nick Wilty's there. And Nick goes, Imran, that joke is really good and you need to work on it. That routine I worked on and that's the routine that got me on Michael McIntyre's comedy roadshow. And it was, it was particularly good because you'd worked on it or it was particularly good because the kernel of it was, like the seed of it was something insightful in a different way to the rest of your gear it was all of those things it was the kernel of it was a great great idea i'm looking at racism from a different point of view of how i'm taking ownership of of the white people i live with and seeing them as different to the white people in america right so that idea was good but i were i I hammered it out in the clubs and got it down absolutely perfectly and then because this is about american kids and uh, the conflict between britain and american american culture which i know a lot about because i lived in america right i went to school there and i got picked on for being english which would never happen to me if i was here right but when i went over there i was representing england and they're like yeah "Yeah, you english guy blah 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 and i was like yeah yeah what you want (laughs) all right so I, all of that just came back as a gift. And by the summer, right, and by, by the spring, the summer, it was good enough that I did it at McIntyre's audition and annihilated it because nobody was doing anything like that, yeah. right? And then got on the show, did really well, and it was part of my uh, Edinburgh hour. So it's really weird. Like, you know, I couldn't have planned for those things. All I can empirically and factually and uh, quantifiably do is turn up to the dojo, working with ideas and with language and learning how to articulate them to the best and most creative way possible for me and to push it even beyond that. Like the best artists always are constantly reinventing themselves, be it what Picasso did or what uh, what Madonna does. And so that discipline... I think everybody attributes this to Henry Ford. You know, the harder I work, the luckier that I get. Or, you know, whether you think you can or you can't, you're, you're probably right. Yeah, yeah. All I do is turn up to the gym to, to, to work on my muscles. And then these serendipitous events, like these American kids slagging me off or the memory of me growing up in America for a year, um, they come along and then you are tooled up, ready to be able to talk about these situations in such a creative way that you're painting pictures in people's imaginations that nobody else is because nobody else is turning up to the platform, to the stage, having just come out of the gym. You, uh, I'm really enjoying how definitely you end your sentences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. And now Sting. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about what happened after that because from the perspective of everyone else in the clubs, it was like, oh, he's off. Yeah. In runs away. Yeah, yeah. Here we go. Bang, McIntyre's Roadshow. Nomination, five-star reviews, mm-hmm. see you later. Mm-hmm. What happened then? Um, so I came back the following year. Suddenly, I'm off the free festival. I'm in the Pleasance now, yeah? <laughs> I'm in the Pleasance. So bless him. You know, shout out to Alex Petty at The Laughing Horse. I wanted to come back to the free festival, but my agent and the, uh, and the promoter who was taking me to the Pleasance was like, no, 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 it's big time now. You, know, you need to be in the Pleasance and you need to sign up to all this debt, blah, blah, <laughs> and all of this. And I went, okay, well, I just trusted, you know, I trusted my handlers. The, the Pleasance uh, is one of the, uh, inverted commas, big four venues at the Edinburgh Festival. Yes. Just for people who are not as it is. Yeah. As so are. yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge big... venues, each of which has numerous sub-venues within them. Yes. But they are all, they are distinct from the free festivals and the free fringes. Yes, because absolutely. Because they cost a lot of money cost for a venue money. hire and that yeah. money is, shall we say, passed on to the act. 
Yes. <laughs> that debt, that debt, yeah, that debt is passing debt. But you know, you get proper tech, you get pro you get the infrastructure, so you as the performer yeah, get to focus on the theater. show. You're Absolutely. hiring a theatre rather than Absolutely. rocking yeah, up. So what it is yeah. and shout out, you know, big props to Alex Petty at the Laughing Horse that he didn't take it as an affront. That I was like, Hey Alex, I'm off to the peasants now, sure. I'm off to the paid venues. He doesn't take and I continue to support the Laughing Horse and I'll, I'll go and do gigs for them. I, I've even hosted their uh, new act competition, which I, I don't know if they still run anymore, but I'm a massive you know i love the laughing horse and what they do but it was time for me to move on and and th there was no th yeah th there's no bitterness they're like oh you know uh, they're really proud that i came through them and then i've gone on to bigger things um or, or, or to uh, you know other places but what they continue to do the free festival is growing and uh it, it's a great place and without it i wouldn't be here without it I, I wouldn't have got this far and you know um, I, it's great that I have a good relationship with them still because I have a massive respect and love for them because it's not just the Laughing Horse Free Festival but the Laughing Horse clubs that we used to do you remember you could yeah, give every man. night of yeah. the week on yeah, a Laughing yeah, yeah. Horse gig and that was our gym now kids today starting stand up they don't have those Laughing it's Horse gigs so much harder oh my to God. find any gigs we were lucky we like, were, we were I, I remember joining it for a while I felt unlucky because I quickly at the moment I went I'm in yeah. I'm in I've discovered but I've found my thing yeah. I'm going to do this for the rest of my life yeah. and I'm going to be like these guys 10 years more experienced than me these women yeah. and men yeah. uh, I'm going to be like these people and because we, we've got it made and then I immediately went oh god it's all contracting and shrinking just as I got here <laughs> it's falling apart and I felt quite negative about aspects of it I felt yeah. scared I felt hunted yeah. and now you look back at it and go well Jesus imagine trying now yeah. imagine starting now forgive uh, me anyone listening to this who's starting now yeah. it's harder yeah it's harder it, 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 it is harder but it's that's the natural you know this is the natural it's the law of the wild I guess you know it's gonna there's gonna be boom and bust and we were lucky that we got in when it was um but you know what here's a good thing now that it's harder only the people who are committed to the art who are committed to the craft will will go forward whereas when it was big because remember just before it bust just before that whole open mic circuit uh, bust pay to play had turned up yeah right and um because of that loads of chances were opening up pay to pay clubs and we're putting on awful product. Yeah. Awful product. Turning off at, comedy audiences. At, yeah. And then that was like, yeah, that, and then that's exactly and what it did. I like 50% of the audience at any stand-up show have never been to stand-up before. Right, and I was right. thinking, how does this model, how do we yeah. all survive when yeah. no one's actually going? Everyone's just trying it once. Yeah. It's such a duty to make sure it's good. Yes, To make sure it's oh, worthwhile, absolutely. to make sure it's at least good enough that they think, oh, I'll come back another time. Let's get back to mm. what happened. You went to the Pleasance and... I, did, I suppose I did what, I'm, what I'm alluding to, as we've spoken to in the past, is you had your 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 go. Yes. Here it is. He's off. Yeah. And then you weren't off. Yes. You weren't away. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Right. So uh, yeah, came up to the following following year with a brand new show, um, and um, sold. I, I think I, I covered the debt. I didn't make any uh, make any money. And I think the problem, uh, so I should have been jumping on and being on uh, various things. And I think it's a combination of there were there were elements of me w where I wasn't ready. Also, I think I I was still holding on to internal unworthiness like internally. I thought, oh, my God, like, yeah, I've succeeded. But I was like, I'm still not good enough and I'm not worth it. And I still need to work harder. And I think then that showed in the business decisions that I made and the people that I built alliances with. So my dream was like, I want to have like a Chappelle show, Imran Yusuf show with lots of sketches. And I had a BBC Three pilot. Uh, one of the things that went wrong with that is that I wrote loads of sketches and we were going to do loads of sketches, but then they ran out of money and they're like, right, we can only do these handful of sketches and you have to fill the rest up with stand-up. I'm like, that's not what we agreed. And having come from video games where things are very professional and everything's accounted for, you come to showbiz and it's the Wild West. 
It really is. Like, there is... Show business is still dying, like, for video game-style production uh, ethics to come in. I know there's some friends of mine in the games industry listening going, mate, you don't know how, how bad it can be in some development studios, um, which it has been. But compared to the companies that I worked at in the games industry, it was like, when at Sega, as games testers, we weren't allowed to make a single mistake. Uh, Sega would turn you into the raw marine of of, of games testing, right? Because they were like, right, we make sure that we find all the bugs and our game goes through passes first time every time. And if you can't keep up with that, you're out. And I'm so grateful that Sega impressed that work ethic on me um, because then it helped me in stand-up. Like, you turn up and you do the job. You're not here to give excuses. You're here to give results. That's it, right? Um, and so I, I guess, you know, I, I was always entrusting... To, uh, I always entrusted... My, my handlers or the producers that I was working with that they knew what they were doing and I could just go, hey guys, that, that's being taken care of, right? And they'll be like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they'll just drop the ball and go, oh, sorry, man, it's not worked out. And then they disappear. And one thing you learn about in show business and one thing I've learned bitterly, like really hard as well, is no one cares about your dream. No promoter, nobody cares about your dream. But the moment you really care about your dream, that shows in your work ethic. It shows in the quality of your product. And when that product booms and people want a piece of it, that's when your promoter, your producer, and all these people care. And it's, it's not an evil thing. It's just the nature of the business. And I think we need to put that in perspective. Nobody cares about you and your dream. So you have to care about you and your dream, right? Because if everything else falls apart, you still respect and you still love yourself. So when these people run away or they disappear, like they kind of did in my case, right? I had to be like, well, everyone, no one cares anymore. and I'm done. Like, well, I care because this is my art. And do you think at the time you were saying that you've had a kind of internalized feeling of unworthiness? Yes. Did that, is, is, that to, is that what you attribute the fact that it didn't, like, are you, like, where does the responsibility lie? You're oh, the responsibility is on me. Sure, it's okay. on me. Responsibility is totally on me. I made the decision to empower, you know, my handlers, agent, producer. I made that decision. And some of it came out of unworthiness. Some of it came out of loyalty, right? Which, uh, and loyalty is definitely an important virtue. Did you turn up with a product that was even better than last year's show? Was uh, your show fun. even better than last year's show? It, it was, was called Bring was the good. Thunder. It was called it? Bring the Thunder. Yeah, <laughs> did bring you the thunder, bring yeah. the thunder? Um, like we're, you know, because it, it yeah. feels a little bit like I can imagine people listening to this going, "Well, you're taking responsibility," but it sounds it, it could be interpreted like you're taking responsibility for trusting the wrong people, which is a little bit like, is that? Do you know what I mean? Like you're taking. It's, it's almost like saying, "I'm sorry, you feel that way." Do you know what I mean? Is that there's a there's a distance there? No, it's it? like, it's it's my like what I, I probably you know I think if I didn't feel so unworthy, if I didn't feel that I was. Uh, if I didn't feel like I wasn't, you know, like, oh, no, you know, I should just trust every, everybody else knows a bit better. Sure, sure. Um, there's a, no, that I take responsibility for that. It's just where I was in my life. You know, that's where it was. But it's still, it was my responsibility to make those decisions. And I could have I put my video game producer's hat on and go, no, this is what we're doing. And if you don't jump on the boat with this, then there's the door. That's what I would do now. I would do Steve Jobs fucking full-on mode now, right? <laughs> um, but that's because I've quashed my unworthiness and I'm fully self-confident and full of self-love and self-worth. And I like to help other people find that within themselves because no one's going to come to save you. No, no matter how much somebody loves you or, or gives you so much, you know, or, or, or tells you that you're great or gives you money or makes you feel great, it's, if your feeling of self-worth is dependent on them, you're always going to be poor. It's like, you know, if you marry your dream woman, like, you know, the perfect model who's straight out of Hollywood, like if, if, if my girlfriend was uh, Amelia Clark, 
Wow. Sorry, 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 quick aside. You know why I really like her? Why I really like her? When she smiles in interviews, she squints and you know she's really having a good time. She's happy on the inside. And I was like, that's what I want, man. So, but if I imagine, imagine Amelia Clark was my girlfriend or my wife, right? Um, that would make me look good by proxy. Just like, wow, how did Imran Yusuf get super, super Hollywood star? And then if my happiness and my worthiness was tied up in like, yeah, but look, look, look who's my, look who's my bird, right? I'll always be poor. I have to be, I have to have that level of happiness and self-confidence for being me and the health that I have, right? So ultimately the responsibility, sorry to, to answer your question, responsibility is entirely on me. So what was the critical reception to Bring Thunder? Um, f- couple of four stars, um, I think like Independent and uh, the, the, the Telegraph. I think that those two, they were four stars. It was good. When I took it on tour, it became really good. Then I was really in my stride. Um, also, I think the effect of feeling unworthy, blowing in 2010, and then having to, be, having to handle this level of fame and attention when you're still unworthy at the bottom, there was going to be problems. And I think, you know, I, I think... Um, I wouldn't say fell out, but suddenly um, friend, uh, drifted away from friends that I was close to on the circuit. On the circuit, um, and uh, and I think fe- Mut- mutually or because you... no, not mutually, I, I, or maybe they kind of felt, oh right, he's a uh, you know Charlie Big Potato, yeah, like he, he's gone. And I didn't intend for, for 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 that to happen, but I think there's also a natural when you stop playing the gigs that some of your friends start, you know. There are people we've been gigging with who've been we've been gigging with people around the, for, for the same amount of years who are still doing open spots, right? Whereas we're not, and so there's going to be this kind of weird distance between two. Like, hey, I'm over here doing this, hanging out with these people now. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I don't like you and that we're not friends, but there is a distinct. Well, dude, you know, you're not pulling your finger out, or you just don't, or you you haven't got it, or you've not developed it yet for for whatever reasons. But. Um, I like to think that I've done my best, you know, I keep in touch with all my friends, whatever level they've been at. And if I've done anything wrong, um, and if I've upset them by saying something, then I've made the effort to apologise and go, if I said anything that upset you, you know, and it, I didn't mean it and it may have come out by accident, just forgive me. Did you have a sense of, and, and let's not, you know, you're not, your career isn't in the doldrums at the moment. You're yeah. up here, do it. I mean, you're, yeah. do you feel successful at the moment? I feel self-mastered and content. I wouldn't say successful in the in the classical sense of, you know, big house, money, car and all this stuff. But I've reached this, uh, I don't know, homeostasis of. I think you need to go through the extremes of life, which is covered in the themes of my show of like, you know, saint, sinner and then Sufis in the middle. You know, this this nice little where you know what both extremes are. So I've done unworthiness, I've done arrogance and now I know how to, you know, kind of dance between the two in the middle without going too far uh, deep okay. e- uh, on either side so I'm, in a, I'm very grateful like I've, I, I wake up every day and I do a little you know li- a little meditation or I just focus on the fact that I have my health I have friends I have savings I have um, I, I'm in a I'm doing something you know I, I, I could go back to the games industry and even then that wouldn't be bad do you know what I mean that would be great I'm back in video games um, although that's like, you know, you've got to work around the clock and wake up early in the morning and I'm not doing that <laughs> anymore. Uh, but I'm a stand-up comedian. I've got an acting agent now. I've got, a, you know, I, I, some, somebody saw me and went, he'd be funny in our sitcom. And I got into a sitcom. Just you Is that don't... shooting at the moment? No, uh, so, no, so that sitcom that I'm working on now, no. So I was in Fried, which is now on Netflix. Um, and the writers of that just saw me and they're like, we want him. 
And I was like, wow, all right. They're just What's Fried? Fried like is a sitcom about a fried chicken shop. Okay. And um, I'm the guy who dresses in, as a chicken and like harasses people. Um, so I got that, and that was my first proper acting role. And then that got me in a proper acting agent. And as you may discover, and many other comedians listening to this, is that your comedy agent will tell you that they'll take care of the acting, but they have less than zero, right? Less than zero contacts and influence in the acting world. Okay. And that in itself handicaps you. But I've got a proper acting agent who's, you know, I've gone up some couple of big things. And I'm like, wow, all right. Do you know what I mean? I'm on these people's radar. So I, I got that out of it. And, uh, and the sitcom I'm working on now. So having worked in the games industry, my dream was to make a sitcom about video games testers. And I wrote, I wrote it years ago. I wasn't very good at writing sitcoms. I still wouldn't class myself as good now. I have a writing partner, Tim Clark, and he's great. Like, he brings real discipline to my chaos and ambition. Um, and I wrote a sitcom about uh, video games testers, but the Imran Yusuf star is done. Nobody wants to make what Imran Yusuf is making. Who? Do you know what I mean? Like, nobody cares. So, like, I showed, like, no, Imran, you don't know what you're doing. So do you think, do you feel that you are... Uh, handicapped by having had a previous taste of success, which now means it's impossible for someone to discover you. Um, not handicapped. I just think I've there was a, the window of opportunity, which uh, failed to for me to make the most out of, and because I wasn't ready. You know, I'm still holding on to this. Un- I was still holding on to this unworthiness, and that was ultimately going to show. You know, in you know, in in wherever I succeeded to. I know people who are very successful right now. Off stage, they're a bag of nerves and they're falling apart. And I'm like, do I want that? You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it would be, how much more comfortable would I sleep in my million pound house if I was bricking it about what I'm going to do next? Do you, do you know, and I've seen that and gone, wow, you know what? Maybe I lucked out. Maybe I lucked out that I didn't get the penthouse apartment on the Thames because, if I was still holding on to that unworthiness. So um, there was a window, but such is life. It happened to Steve Jobs. I'm, I, I constantly use him as an example because I'm reading his biography at the moment. And, you know, he sets up Apple. He wasn't a nice man, right, all the time. He, he, he was quite brutal. Um, and then he gets kicked out of the company he started. So he goes and sets up Next, hemorrhages loads of money, buys Pixar for like five million from George Lucas who's trying to get rid of him, you know, because the divorce is happening. And uh, puts five million on top of his own money, or so. I think it's five million or of his own money on top of the five million he's already paid for them to, for, you know, to, to, for them to do some stuff. And um, he makes Pixar happen, and he makes Toy Story happen, and Apple are now dying, right? And then he goes back, fires everybody, and then iPod, iPhone, <laughs> iPad, <laughs> iMac, all of these things. And I see myself like I can have that similar experience. Like I've had this fall from that trajectory. But that can be a good thing. It's like stock market. It booms, it busts, then it booms again, right? And I've, who I've become in this, um, in this time since that trajectory has fallen off and I've plateaued, right, you know, since then is that I've, I've become a much more mature and whole person. I'm now, you know, so whatever happens at this festival, you know, all I can guarantee, I don't read reviews. I don't look at my, um, uh, how many tickets I've sold. Whatever happens, my job is to go into that room and put on the best performance of my life every time for whoever's paid. One person turns up, for that one person, I've got to put on the best performance possible. It'll be hard because I'd be like, oh man, this really sucks as one person, but I've got to turn up and deliver and do the job. It's as simple as that. And what's the worst that's going to happen to me? I'll come up here, lose a bit of money. I've got 
I've got a bit of money. I'm doing all right. Acting jobs, you know, pop in every now uh, now and then and pay off a lot. I've got, you know, um, I, I've still got my hand in with the clubs, um, with some of the clubs, not all of them. Some of them uh, don't take me anymore. So... And what is that? For, is that? Do you, I mean, you sound like you're booking your own. Do you book your own? Life? Yeah, I, I take. I, I don't have a comedy agent at all. No one will touch me. I've been turned down by over ten agents in the last four years. Why is that? Do you think? Um, because it's a business decision. You've got to look at someone. Um, when I when the, when the when I was booming, everybody wanted me. Like everybody's like, yeah, what's going on? What's going on? Hello, hello. Do you remember us? The people who didn't want me wanted me. But now you look at me and go, well, he'd make some money on the circuit, but nobody in TV wants him. Like he's, you know, he's not gonna. As my perceived value in many people's eyes isn't significant enough for them to want to invest in me because your agent invests in you, right? That they're going to do the best that they can for, you know, uh, what you're able to do. But what you're able, you, you have to bring something significant to your agent. It's a partnership. You know, you and your agent is a partnership. And I think I had, my stock price was high, everybody wanted, and then it dropped and people were like, yeah, we don't want him now. Like, we'd rather go and get a fresh piece of stock that's about to boom rather than this guy who's dropped. But in the way that life has its own plans, like there's a, there's a Jewish and Muslim and uh, Nintendo saying, right? The Jewish saying is, uh, man plans and God laughs. The Muslim saying from the Quran is, uh, man plans and God plans and God is the best of planners. And Nintendo, loosely translated into Japan, from Japanese into English means, so Nintendo means you can work hard, but in the end, it's all in heaven's hands. So essentially, it's like, you know, you do your thing, right? But there are far greater forces at work that we're unaware of and that we have no comprehension of because we are a byproduct of this reality. We didn't create it. We, we have emerged from it. And there are far greater things at work. And all you can do is turn up and do your best. I love being a stand-up, and you could tell from my show, like, I, I really hit my rhythm in that show, because I think I, I'd just done enough to go, right, I'm in it now, and I really yeah, enjoy yeah. this. I, and the joy of doing it, like, I know I'll be able to tour that show, even if it is only to, like, 10 small venues, I could do that. And I'm going to work on the next show. I'm going to continue to do my art, even if I never get back on TV or become like a, get a Netflix special or all the bells and whistles that we think we want. The real reward is in self-expression. Everything else is a false idol. See, now this is where the Abrahamic part comes out, right? <laughs> it's just, you've got to be wary of idols. We, we think classically idols are like, oh, praying before a stone statue that we claim that is a deity or is God. But I think it's a metaphor of like, hey, I want to be on that show because when I'm on that show, I will have credibility. Like Michael, being on Michael McIntyre's Roadshow gave me huge credibility. Getting the nomination gave me huge credibility. But the reason I got on there was because of what I'd become. Do you see what I mean? It wasn't. If they'd stuck me on there um, two years earlier, I, I would have. I, I would have. I would have died. If you know, I, I couldn't have got nominated, and I, and I couldn't have done the job on the show. But it's about who you become. I was having a conversation yesterday with uh, a newer act, newer, it was six, five or six years, who said that a part of my show that I'm performing at the moment, the end of, mm. um, he uh, he said a particular bit resonated with him, and it's a, a kind of wry take on what it feels like to have your friends streak ahead and become successful, yeah, and then to hang out with other friends and then see them streak ahead and get successful. Right, you know right, what I mean? Like, and I'm I preface it all with my own happiness and humility within the industry, yeah. but I am talking about that, you know, what yeah. that feeling is, and I'm trying yeah. to be honest about kind of when you're thinking, Jesus, is it, is it me? Yeah, yeah. The conversation I had with him, he said, oh, I've been feeling some of those things a lot. A couple of my friends have got these massive agents, everything, what do I do? 
and I, I hope I said not dissimilar things to you. You know, I've got like a the the pack of look the, the matrix pack of like plug these six positive yeah, ideas, yeah, yeah, just bam, yeah. wham them in your head. Yeah. You know, like that thing Simon Munnery said, it's not a race, it's a dance. Yes. You know, you can't win comedy. That's why I suppose in some ways I, I slightly take issue with the idea of the athleticism metaphor that you yeah. talked about, the empirical evidence of can you become empirically better by doing scientific things like grow your vocabulary? At the end of the day, it's about art. It's about yes. insight. Yeah. It's about a miracle that you're creating. Mm. And that isn't, I, I don't think that's measurable. I think that's artistic. It will mm. mean different things to different people. But I, I do respect the, the yeah. kind of perspective. I think that, I, and I agree with you that there are components of it that are empirical and components of it that we, we, can't, uh, we, we can't measure. Hence, you know, uh, it's all in heaven's hands. Sure. Um, but all I can do is turn up to the gym. Yeah, like that's that's I I can't guarantee anything else. Well, before we wrap up, let's talk. There's two more things in particular that I wanted to talk about. One is your uh, your fascination with self improvement. Yes, and which particular tools? If anyone's listening to this and thinking, oh yeah, he's, he sounds like he's got his head together. Yeah, you know, as as I think a lot of people will be in a lot of comics listening to this. A lot of people outside of comedy will listen to this who maybe got an early break or uh, blew up early or haven't quite achieved what they thought they were going to. I mean, that, that's 99% of people. I'm sure even the top acts, this is another thing I said to this guy yesterday, even the, the top acts you can think of are frustrated that they can't get the next thing. Right. Do you know what I mean? I'm yeah. sure Burr, to some extent, is thinking, well, these Netflix specials are all very well, but how do I get off that into the next thing? Do you yeah. know what I mean? I'm sure yeah. everyone is kind of... Sure, sure. Reaching. Um, so... If anyone is in that position, listening to you and the amount by which you've got your state of mind squared away as a, from a place of positivity, which particular resources made the most difference to you? Which particular books or speakers or YouTube videos or right. wow. courses or whatever? Did you do like a... I've personal... done all the courses. I've done, like, I've, I've done every personal development course, like major one. I've bought loads of books. Can you name a few of the yeah, sorts okay. of Yeah, okay, so I'll start about? with this, right. So um, the, the, ease, the, the, the one... The one to start with, if you want to get into personal development, start with Anthony Robbins, right? Okay. He is the biggest. And I, I, and what's great is, remember, you don't have to buy any of this like, for, like it's gospel. If you don't agree with some of it, you don't agree with it, and that's fine. But Anthony Robbins, in my opinion, is, is the best. I think he's the most authentic. Like, he really cares. And he covers everything. And he also, um, he walks the talk. Like, so there are some personal development people you know, who'll be like, oh, this is, you know, this, do this, this, and this, and you, you can be the master of your mind. But then they're, you know, they're massively unhealthy. And I'm like, well, why don't you reprogram your mind to lay off the donuts then? Do you know what I mean? Like, how, you know how to fleece us for money, but you don't know how to, you know, stop. shut your mouth <laughs> and stop <laughs> eating that junk. So I've done, so I've done, um, Anthony Robbins is a good place to start, right? So that's, that's, he is the easy, um, the, the easy access and very comprehensive everything in your life, your health, your wealth, relationships, uh, business, all of this stuff, right? Um, the other extreme, now some people think this thing is a cult and I understand why because I've done two of their courses, is the Landmark Forum. Yes, I right. know a lot so of people I did Landmark. the Landmark Forum, I did the Landmark, for, uh, a Landmark Advanced course as well, Forum Advanced course, so I did the two. I didn't do the third one, um, I found a way to get out of it, right? Uh, which, is not, <laughs> which is not easy. You found not a way easy. to get out of it, that now, does make it sound scary. Landmark, and yeah. I, I know yeah. a couple of close friends who've right. been through it and, and have devoted their lives to it, right. really full on, and uh, benefited enormously. Yeah. But I've never done it, and the one time I went along, because yeah. an ex-girlfriend of mine years ago was invited, 
invited to mm-hmm. the, one of the weird ceremony culty bits. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, my radar was jangling. Like, yeah, get away yeah. from this. Yeah. People, it's up to the listener to make up their yeah. mind. And I totally see it. Landmark, in my opinion, my experience of it was brutal. Just brutal. But it was good. And I'm glad I did it. I recommend it to people. So I did the forum. I did the advanced course. And the last one is called Self-Expression and Leadership Program, the last one. And they kind of, you know, press you into doing it. They tell me, well, we're not forcing you. I'm like, you are when you're like kind of, you know, not giving, just not accepting that I've said no. But the reason they do that is because we often use excuses to not commit to things that will really help us, right? And they kept on chasing me. And then one day the penny dropped because then I went and did John D. Martini's course. John D. Martini has something, the breakthrough experience. And he... I think he's in the middle. He's between a Tony Robbins and a landmark, right? And um, and then uh, and the penny uh, a, a penny dropped when I did D Martini's course. Um, so when landmark called me, right? So when you're going to come and do SELP, and I, and I any excuse I had, they had a rebuttal for that, and they were going to win. I knew it, but I'd found the ultimate the ultimate get out, if you like. Um, they're like, so when are you going to come do it? And I go, well, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to. I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. I benefit from landmark um, a lot. And I do recommend it to people, but I'm not coming back to do the final course because I do not want to do it. And they went, oh. (laughs) (laughs) So it wasn't like, oh, I'm not, you know, I can't. And because of this, I just went, no, because I said no. I took total ownership of my reality and went, no. But still, if you're listening to this, I would actually, because I've done all of them. So I'd recommend all of them. I just didn't want to continue to the final phase of landmark and and then drink the Kool-Aid. I did Paul McKenna and Richard Bandler's NLP week. Right. Um, and this I had issues at this one. Like I think what they're technically teaching makes sense. But um, I think Paul McKenna is a better teacher than Richard Bandler. And I don't think Paul McKenna knows that. Richard Bandler is the co-creator of NLP. Okay. And he's very good. He's been in the business a long time. And I think his heart's in the right place. But I think because he's an old bloke, some of his politics and the way that he describes certain things uh, are really out of touch. But when you're in a room where everybody's paid thousands of pounds to listen to you, you know, you could tell them anything. They'll be like, yeah, all right, whatever. Um, but I think Paul McKenna is, is a great teacher who, uh, who holds himself back really weirdly enough. I, I actually look at Paul McKenna and go, man, you're really good, but you're even better than this, man. Like, why are you holding yourself back? So um, I, I've done all of these and more and loads of books. So I'd say do all of them if you want. Um, Anthony Robbins is a great entry level and the most comprehensive. Landmark is... Do you know who did the landmark? The Wachowski brothers, who are now the Wachowski sisters. Yeah. So the rumor is that they did landmark and then wrote the Matrix. And I see why. Because landmark is like the Matrix. They ask you questions and get you to consider the very nature of how you define reality. And that's where it gets scary. Like, these are just sounds we're making. And we give the meaning. And that's why it makes sense. Otherwise, we're just blah, 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 blah. That's all that's really happening, right? And things... Uh, you know, we live in a country, so this is, we're in Scotland, which is part of Britain. But that's just a name that we've given to a lump of soil that's sticking out the ocean that we can reside on because we can't actually just float on the sea and live as easily. Um, and that has a culture and it has a flag. There's a, there's a square or, you know, there's a rectangle that has a bunch of colours and shapes on it. And we think that means something and represents us. And we're prepared to die for it and wave it at special occasions. And when you start questioning that, that's all it really is. You realize, wow, we define our reality. So Landmark, when I say is the most brutal, they're not pulling punches at Landmark. And therefore, that's the good part of it. Right? Yeah, they're, I understand. That's I understand. the good part yeah, of it. They're, they're not there to be your friend and to tell you, you know, blah, blah. Uh, they will challenge, you know, even how you, 
you know, you affiliate yourself to your religion. It's a story you want to tell yourself. Anything is, you know, I'm English, I'm Asian. That's another story I'm telling myself, right? Yeah. But these are my points. It's all stories. Or, or I'm unworthy. It's another story. Yeah. So, um, Tony Robbins, John D. Martini, uh, Landmark, Richard Bandler and uh, Paul McKenna, done all of them, but start with Tony Robbins. Um, and as for fellow comics who are reading this, Phil Nickel put me onto this. Phil Nickel put me onto a book called The Artist's Way by Julia yes, Cameron. Yes, a lot of people on this podcast have talked about right. The Artist's Way. So yeah. I write every day. I do three pages of freehand every day. Um, also, Stephen King's book on writing, type. That came up yesterday. Yeah. I love that book. So, you know, just type t- a thousand words a day. He does 2,000, and that's why he's Stephen King, right? Um, so you've got to practice. You've got to go to the gym, and your gym is reading and writing if you're a comic. Read and write every day and learn about things that challenge you. So one of the things I've been doing recently, because I want to grow and I want, I want stand-up to evolve. So that means that I have to evolve. Because stand-up doesn't physically exist. Human beings exist and our behaviours characterise what religions are and what, you know, art is. There would be no... None of these things would exist until we turn up and define them and behave in a certain way to cause the phenomenon to, to, to exist. To bring it back to you... In as much as you exist. (laughs) Um, I suppose it sounds to me a little bit like, and I'm completely prepared to be be wrong on this, it almost sounds like someone who signed up to every dating site. Do you know what I mean? It sounds like, like, are you supposed to do all of these courses or are you supposed to do one course, learn something, and then get on with your life? Yeah, oh, sure. Do you feel a bit addicted to personal development? Um, Not, not, I wouldn't say addicted, but it becomes... I realized how useful it is when I went into a slump, when I was in a bad state, or where, where I was like, why, do, why can't I change this area of my life? What is it that I'm missing? So you don't have to do all these courses, but it's just like you should choose to educate yourself to the highest level possible at all times, right? Not necessarily formally, just learning, lifelong learning. So yeah, I, and different, you know, Tony Robbins teaches one type of thing, John D. Martini teaches a different type of thing. They're similar in many ways, but they have different approaches. But Tony Robbins is really about love. Like really big into that. John D. Martini's a bit like it's about you need bullies in your life because bullies help you get stronger, right? And you're like, whoa. So he's like in, in this middle kind of uh, way. And then landmarks just like you define your reality and all the words that you're using, blah 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 blah. And you know you go, th- you take the, that pill in the Matrix and you start seeing through it. Um, and so sorry, this bo- um and the reason it's not am I addicted to self development? I'm I'm I guess I'm addicted to growing, to evolving. And this reminds me of what I was about to say, and then I forgot. I wanna I want I want stand up comedy to evolve, so I have to evolve. I want to be the guy who's like he took it to the next level, right? Because there's excitement in where it can go next. There's real like I love watching a comedian. I always love watching comics who are who possess uh, a characteristic that is better than I have, like Rob Rouse and, uh, and uh, Roger Monkhouse. I, was talking I just saw Rob Rouse's show. It was the festival. I was like, I love the way he uses language, man. It's amazing. I really respect that. Every and so often I get a text from Rob Rouse. They're just my favourite texts. Oh, man, I, I want to get on this group. so full of character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was just, he sold me a van. Yeah, it's not that bad. If you want into the group, you've got to buy his van. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so... Um, so if I'm going to evolve, I've got to, I've got to be committed to lifelong learning. But what does that mean? Not just reading books. I'll give you an example of something. So in my show, I'll cover the fact that here are the people that, here are my enemies, but also here is where I'm the villain. This is where I'm the racist. This is the prejudice that I hold. And one of the things that I've done, as a, as a member of the Muslim community, whether I like it or not, right, it comes with a responsibility. I've been born into it. I've got to run with this now, right? And I realize there's this conflict between Muslims and Jews over what's happening in the Middle East. I'm like, well... 
let me go and learn about them. I went to the Jewish Museum twice. I learned stuff about the Jewish uh, community and the Jewish history that I never knew about. I didn't know that Jewish people had been persecuted to death in this country by Britain hundreds of years ago and even expelled. And I was like, wow, now that I know this, what kind of psychological impact is that going to have on generations of Jewish people in this country that when anti-Semitism rears its head and they react, of course they're going to react. Do you know what I mean? Like they've been running, you know, they've been having to deal with this everywhere they go. And so I took my time to learn about someone who could quite easily be my enemy. And now I meet with uh, other Jewish people I know off the circuit um, and uh, an Israeli playwright that I met through a Muslim Jewish uh, interfaith group thing yes, that I went um, to. You that, that I was talking about. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I was just like, you know what? I turn up and go, guys, tell me about your life. Tell me about, you know, your, your Jewish life or your Israeli life. And I'm just going to listen. I'm not going to jump in and go, yeah, but, you know, blah, 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 blah. But I'm not going to do that. I just want to listen because if we're going to get along, if we're going to, Peace is going to take a long time to build. It's not an easy thing to... Think about our ancestors, man. Think about who your great-great-grandfather would have been, my great-great-grandfather would have been. They couldn't have chilled out like this and, you know, uh, and spoken about what they were speaking about. It would, have been, it would have been quite horrible. It would have been quite terrifying. But yet we can, and we don't hold on to that bullshit. Mm. What, you know, residually, I think we do. There's, there's a, bit of, a bit of guilt or a bit of get over it, and there's a bit of like, come on, guys, you really fucked up and you need to cover this in your history. Oh, sure. But... Not so much the fact that you guys, we can't be friends, and that we can't hang yeah. out. And, you know, like, it's totally normal now that I could marry, you know, I could marry a, a, a white girl and have children. And we live in a country where that's normal now. In fact, to think that's not normal is abnormal. Yeah. And so we've made progress. And so that all starts with us going, hey, let's sit down and talk. Let's listen to each other. And even if you say something horrible and offensive, I'm not going to turn around and kill you and vice versa. But let's listen to each other's pain. Let's acknowledge each other's pain. And I think this is probably the greatest thing that holds back potential peace between any people. We're all trying to go, my pain is greater than yours. I have suffered more than you. And instead of doing that, just go stop. You know what? Hey, man, what's wrong? Do we have the courage? Do we have the ability to squash that atom of pride, as I was saying to myself, that atom of pride, to go, you know what, I'm hurt, but you know what, let me, let me listen to you. Let me listen to you and know, and know what your pain is. Because then I could interpret that perhaps my religion or my spiritual belief or my lack of spiritual belief or whatever you want to call it, I already have a lot of wealth in my life, right? You know, I don't have white privilege or white entitlement, but you know what, I have greater socioeconomic mobility and greater command of the English language than the poorest white people in this country. Right. So how poor am I or how how much, you know, uh, what privilege do I have as well? I've got to own my own privilege. And when I realize that I focus when I focus on my wealth, I can take time to go, hey, man, like what's trouble? What are you hurt by? And how can I help you as a member of my community to, to make you feel safer and for you to not feel afraid? And that's something we need that kind of leadership and that kind of narrative within the Muslim community, definitely. Um, and I, I think world events have shown us, oh, we need more leaders in the Muslim community that can help build this bridge because we all want to cross it. Not everybody's going to want to cross this bridge. We're all going to have extremists in our communities and they all end up in Luton, right? <laughs> is, who are not going to want to cross that bridge, but we want to cross that bridge because we evolve as, as, a, as this human creature, when we all first met, we were like, oh, my God, what the hell is it? Right. And we colonized and murdered each other and, um, you know, subjugated each other. And some of that still continues. But there's this there's this sweet spot, which is the majority of Western or at least British society, 
where we're, we're coming together and we're becoming friends, we're becoming families. We even, it's, it's, no, it's not so much more mate anymore. It's bruv and bro. I see it, man. I see, you know, black guys and white guys and Asian guys. Hey, bro, what's going on? Wow. Like, wow. Even at that small, it would have been, excuse me. Excuse me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Not, yo, what's, what's going on, bruv? What's going on, bro? You know, even mate itself was progress, but bro and bruv, it's huge. And it's becoming What's normal. next? All right, love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be like, you right, sweetheart? Are you happy? I'm in a good place. I think happy is like a, it, it's, the, the opposite of happy is sad. And I'm here in the middle where I'm content. Because the moment you're happy, there's the, there's the danger you're going to fall to sad. So I can visit happy, right? Uh, but I'm always, I'll, I'll always, my, my, my normal state is content. Like I'm, and so therefore, because I'm content, I'm happy. Because nothing can phase me. Whatever happens, happens, right? And it's how I choose to deal with it. So I may not have, my career might not be on fire. I may not be on the trajectory that I was in, but I'm the best stand-up I've ever been. Like, I respect the stand-up that I've become. And I love stand-up. And as long as I can continue this level of self-expression, and I'll always be able to play the clubs. I'll always be able to do, play to my, a small audience who like me because I've got sufficient followers, and that's, that's great, you know? you know? There's more to life than getting on Netflix and being on Live at the Apollo. I want to get married now, man. I want to have a family. Like, I'm ready for it as well. Like, I feel that I love myself and I respect myself enough. I want to find my soulmate. So I'm not messing around. I'm no, like, you know, uh, I'm not looking for a, 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 any, a, a, any, any kind of... Uh, I'm not looking for any kind of action. I'm looking for that. When I look into her eyes, that I know that I'm looking at my spiritual soulmate, the woman that I'm meant to build a life with. And I've never felt that way. I've wanted it, but I've never felt that I'm in that place, that I am that caliber of man to find that caliber of woman who's going to be like, let's start a family and create the next generation of leaders, the people who are going to continue the work that we're doing and make the world even better. So um, I've got a great vision for my life. I may not fulfill it. I may die tomorrow, right? It may not happen. But I came into this world, through, into this mystery, and I became me. I found I overcame the obstacles and the challenges of of growing up being told that I'd never be anything and holding on to that unworthiness to be able to stand up on a stage and perform comedy to such a standard in my second language that people from different walks of life. I mean, there's two gay blokes in the front row yeah. there, and they loved my show. They did. I judged and I hated these people as a young man because of my ignorance. And now they come to watch me because they hear what I'm saying is authentic and I mean it. And I became that guy. And if this is where it ends, this is where it ends, right? Um, and then I believe that, you know, we go on to something else. I only, but I can't prove it. I cannot prove it. There's no evidence. But I, except what I've seen on DMT. <laughs> that was the other topic, which we don't have time for. Let's talk about DMT next time. Yes, we'll talk about DMT. But, um, but you know, just think, Malcolm X had his life cut short. Gandhi, uh, you know, he, you know he, he was murdered, but he lived a long life. Martin Luther King had his life cut short. Um, but look at, look at the change that they, you know, they, they exist still. They exist in our hearts as minds as people who transform their own lives and help transform the world by being an example that we should all follow. And, you know, I, I've met a couple of comics like, hey, man, I got into stand-up because I, I saw you and I was like, bless, wow. Like the way I look up to Adam Bloom, who was my first mentor, and to the Stephen K. Amos's and the Sean Mio's and the, that, that generation of comic, the way that I look up to them and how they inspired me, I've got to pass on to somebody else. And, you know, great. I got, I, I got, I got to do that much.
Thanks, bruv. Thank you, man. <laughs> Thanks, bro. Sorry. I, didn't ca- I, I haven't eaten. I haven't had breakfast. My brain is... Also, eat. Make sure you eat. So thank you to Imran. That was Imran Yusuf. Uh, I hope you will find his stuff online. He's really living life on Turbo, isn't he? He's an incredibly invigorating uh, presence to be in a room with. Uh, and I really enjoy his comedy. So do check out him when you can. Now, this is about the fifth take of me trying to record this bit because my brain is falling apart. I've been awake since four o'clock this morning and um, I am not coping well. <laughs> I'm coping. I'm coping happily. That's the key thing. I'm coping happily with the advanced sleeplessness, um, but I'm not coping well with it. Uh, I'm not being very productive. I've decided to extend my paternity leave by a further week, um, other than one or two little mercifully local uh, gigs. And um, I will hopefully be a little bit more together by the time I speak to you uh, next week. Thank you to Nathan Wood for editing and producing this episode, to Rob Smouten for the music, check out Black Peaches online and some of his other musical projects, and uh, also to Peter Dobbing, podcast consultant, and of course Imran, and Bex Colwell, uh, Imran's PR in Edinburgh, for helping me set that up. There's a lot of fun stuff coming your way soon. We've still got some cracking episodes in the can. Join the Facebook ComCom group if you would like to ask some advanced questions of Ed Axel, who I'm very excited to be having on the show in the next couple of weeks. And I'm going to get in a, into a big booking mode soon. So there have been some great suggestions on the Facebook group for people I should look up. Um, and uh, I'm not going to tell you any of their names because some emails have gone out. And uh, I'm hoping that some of them come back to me and say yes. And you can join the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. So uh, hook up with me at info at comedianscomedian.com or indeed via Twitter or Instagram at comcompod uh, or at the website, which has a search function now. This was mentioned on the uh, the, the Facebook page recently um, that uh, there is a very useful search function. If you go to comedianscomedian.com, you can put in the name of your favourite comic and find out if they have their own episode from the last 267 or indeed if other comedians have referred to them. It's, there's all sort of tags and categories and everything else. And very few people use that function. And We put it in there. It's been there for ages. Um, but uh, someone newly pointed out on Facebook it was there. So I'm just making you aware uh, of that. If you've got questions for Ed Axel, jump on the Facebook group and ask away. Get in touch however you fancy. I will post Amble at you briefly and with a mind that is melting through lack of sleep uh, if you'd care to stick around after this noise. If not, that concludes the show. I'll speak to you soon. Oh, God, I mean, you can... Oh, my God. <laughs> Don't worry. When when this this bit, I've done this before, so I know that this bit changes. I know that this bit will come to an end, and um, I will. You know, it could be as as early as two years from now when I get to sleep again. Um, but uh, we have been sharing the sleep, and uh, I I am getting more sleep than my wife, and I am functioning at a very low cognitive capacity, and. Um, it's important, I think, at this stage, speaking as a having been a, a parent for a while and having undergone this process before, from what I remember, it's important to stay positive and uh, to remind yourself that it doesn't last long, this bit, and, um, and hey, you'll miss it when it's not here, and, and just don't reflect on anything. <laughs> don't, don't imagine that any of the things I'm sort of feeling and experiencing now are, um, are lasting that's one of the biggest dangers with mental health, isn't it? Is that one takes one's own 
current feeling and go and one goes i'll just talk about me that's the thing isn't it when you when you me or you when you take a, a an emotion you go god things are like this now things are things are like i'm you know that that um that is it the eyedropper tool on a sort of photoshop program that you go there's a little drop of that color and you color color everything that color that's what fucking anxiety and 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 some other mental health conditions can be like isn't it you go oh i'm, I'm eyedropping my current emotion scared anxious panicky fearful and I'm applying that to the rest of time. I will always be like this. And um, of course you won't. That's daft, isn't it? So you, you, I think I need to be more rigorous in my uh, mental jujitsu at the moment because there are more people. There are people depending on me. There are tangibly more people depending on me. Um, but also my wife in particular is depending on me more. So I have this sort of, what do you do? I'm so used to the kind of the therapy speak of going, hey, listen, just let yourself, you know, don't push yourself too hard. The worst thing you can do is to clam up, tighten up and kind of go, oh, I'm going to be fine. But then there are certain circumstances in life that seem to demand that, such as when you are responsible for other human lives and when you're part of a couple and you're both finding it hard. It's no good just going, well, darling, I know you've uh, you've not slept and uh, your mind's falling apart as well, but I'm really just going to spend some, just going to swim in Lake Me for a bit. <laughs> you know, you've you've got to... You've got to get through it somehow. It's it's all fine, you know what I mean. I'm uh, you can hear I'm I'm sort of happy, but in a pretty delirious way at the moment. Um, uh, life's good. She's continuing to be cute. Uh, the boy is. Uh, we're there's a thing. Anger management, right? Have I talked about this? There's a thing in managing managing one's own anger. Um, I got taught this wonderful phrase, um, I'm not furious, I'm curious. And it's really good because if you say it out loud, it sort of makes you laugh because it rhymes, it sort of makes you smile. Um, and it's good when you find yourself getting cross with the sprog and maybe your line manager or uh, road rage drivers, you know, uh, other people in your life. If you are uh, child free, say out loud to yourself quietly if you're in company, I'm not furious, I'm curious. Because it just reframes the whole thing, doesn't it? You make It makes you sort of go, this isn't about me. Like, my anger isn't helpful here. It's much better to try and understand. And me and the Bootross are in this system now whereby he's winding me up and I go, look, I'm not furious, I'm curious. And he smiles and he always goes, no, furious. And <laughs> But at least there's that. So at least that kind of makes us laugh. Um, it, it's... Uh, it's astonishing the 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 speed, the flickering sort of waterfall of emotions that wash through you. This is an unashamedly uh, child-related postamble. Let's just deal with that. Last night, fifty-five minute meltdown. Pretty much whole family in tears, screaming. <laughs> Not me, him, <laughs> uh, the Boutros, as he manages his emotions in the wake of a huge, like a fundamental family shift. He is now first equal rather than first in, in our attention. And he and he doesn't know that that's what he's dealing with, but that's what he's dealing with. And um, oh, big, chunky, difficult stuff being worked through. And you, I don't know if you can hear. I'm in there. <laughs> I'm in there. I'm hidden in the nursery and I'm talking into my sponge box again. Um I don't know if you can hear some shouting children downstairs. He's, I think he's very chipper at the minute. He's got a, a playmate over. Um, but there's there's big stuff being worked through. And you, one, I, I need to remain calm. And this, the emotions wash through him. They, they wash, they torrent through him. 
in exactly the same way as they torrent through me, because lo and behold, he appears to be quite like me. I, it was my one of my biggest fears in having children was thinking, oh, I don't want to sort of give them this legacy of anxiety that I have. I don't want I think of the worst moments when, I, when I've felt at my lowest. But why would you bestow that upon a person? And of course, then you decide, nope, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and, and already I can see in him, and my wife has pointed out, I, I'll say to her, oh God, look, he's all over the place. Like one minute he's sort of super chirpy and the other he's just in bits. And she gave me a, a Paddington-style hard stare that made me kind of realise, oh yeah, yeah, that's where he gets, where he gets that from. So, um, so I suppose there is something very uh, beautiful about recognising one's own flaws in one's offspring and going, oh yeah, I can't be, I've got to give him a break on that one. I've got to give him a pass there because he only got it from me. And probably this is relatable, whatever your own flaws are. And, uh, oh God, I've got to sleep. I've, um, I remember someone, I won't name them in case they wouldn't like to be named, but I remember a comic who was a parent years ago saying to me, oh, I'm all, I'm all about the new selfishness now. It's the new selfishness. You have to make time for yourself. You have to. You owe your family a happy version of yourself. Um, so you have to make time. You have to, that investment thing, isn't it? You have to pay yourself first, but you have to pay yourself a little bit of time first. And God damn it, if that means going to a gig 20 minutes earlier than you strictly have to so that you can just get your breath back, that's good for everyone, isn't it? Sorry, wife. <laughs> I did that. I did that. I'm admitting this to you now live. I went to a gig 20 minutes early so that I could get there and sit in the car and just sit and just have some me time. And I feel terrible about it, so I'm admitting it publicly so that I can publicly apologise <laughs> whilst cravenly suggesting that it's reasonable to do so. Whew. It's all, it's all changes. It's all a change. It's all all right. sure there's other stuff happening in the world the midterms they were exciting weren't they the house and the senate and all that stuff uh and some other stuff brexit you know that's all uh looks like it might happen now Ooh, yeah bigger you know bigger bigger stuff going on than this oh everything's great it's all good love you speak to you soon